0: Hi everyone, I want to welcome you to a very special gathering here tonight for our substack, our Transform community. Um, someone who is making um, a lot of waves, uh, no pun intended given your, your scientific background, uh, Peter. Peter Kalmas is with us tonight. Peter wrote a book called Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. And I, I see Peter as someone who embodies the transformational energy and movement that is going to change this world and i say this because he is a climate scientist he uh, is a scientist at nasa's jet propulsion laboratory as an associate project scientist at ucla's joint institute for regional earth system science and engineering he has a bachelor's degree in physics from harvard he has a PhD in physics from Columbia University. He's the most followed climate scientist on Twitter, and he writes and talks and lives meditation, mindfulness, spirituality, personal transformation. He is someone who doesn't just talk about it, but truly understands the changes that have to occur on the inside as well as the outside and their intimate connection. So Peter Thomas, thank you so much for being with us tonight.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I don't get to talk about the the sort of spiritual side very much, so I'm actually really excited about this too. <coughs> I should also say that I'm speaking. I'm I'm here, and I'm speaking on my own behalf. So, you mean? The, are
0: you mean NASA doesn't want to talk to us about meditation tonight? Well, I, I bet you're
1: not. You know, I think a lot of people at NASA do meditate, and I mean, and that's true at the
0: Pentagon also.
1: There's so much science behind it too about the neuroplasticity. You know, I I kind of think about it as sort of. Um, It's like, you know, piano practicing, but for kind of non-attachment and, you know, sort of ego dissolution and not reacting and escalating things. So like if somebody comes to you with bad energy, like anger, for example, your natural reaction is to react with anger. And so it takes a lot of work to change that really, really deep habit pattern. So that's why, you know, it's like it is like practicing piano. It's like a 10,000 hour kind of thing.
0: Well, you're working on your attitudinal muscles. It's no different than when you go to the yeah. gym. It takes work. But next time I see some tweet for you, from you about, uh, about your emotional attachment to something going on, I might remind you of your own words. So, everybody, wow. I want to read this sentence from, um, from Peter's book. These two seemingly disparate things, reducing my own fossil fuel use and increasing my ability to love, are actually intimately interconnected. So, once again, this book here's a book by a climate scientist about reducing fossil fuel consumption, about how important this is. This book explains the science behind all of that. And the final chapter is called Love. So, um, I was especially proud. I was
1: really proud of that chapter, too.
0: Yeah, well, I'm proud of it, too. I'm proud of you, too. Okay, let's go back a little bit because I think your own personal story. Is, is is really clarifies a lot of your journey, not only as a scientist, but as a person. Um, tell us a little bit. Um, how did you become this bicycling gardening guy uh, from the kind of scientific background uh, that you b- began with?
1: Well, so it was in 2006, I was halfway through my PhD in New York City. Um, and uh, my first son was born. And that was like a huge you know seismic event in my life and it kind of like jolted me out of like just thinking about myself a little bit and started thinking about the future more and that was the same year that inconvenient truth came out and then i also heard a lecture that really scared me uh, from jim hansen he he it was a scientific lecture about energy imbalance on the earth about more energy coming in than going out and how that means the earth is heating up and so those things all got me thinking about the future and thinking about climate change which up to that point felt like a distant science fiction thing to me like i was i was young i was like in new york city i was having a lot of fun i was doing science and i hadn't been i'd been like blissfully ignorant of um where earth was heading and how fast it was happening and how serious it was going to be so i was You know, I wasn't in denial, but I was just ignorant. I just didn't know. And so when I found out about that stuff, I kept reading more about it and getting more concerned and feeling more weird about getting gaslit, you know, because again, 2006, very, very different time than now. Back then, it was not being reported. It was not in the news the way it is now. And people on the street would roll their eyes. If you, you know, friends at lunch, other PhD students, I'd go to lunch and I'd be like, you know, this climate change thing is really serious. And, but I would get eye rolls and people didn't, they weren't ready to hear about it. They didn't want to talk about it. Um, the undergraduates in their green clubs at Columbia, they were doing things like, you know, they had initiatives to get plastic bags out of the dining hall. But I would talk to them a lot climate change and they are like, they would, they roll their eyes too, just like everyone else. So, um, so I didn't really feel that there was any avenue to activism at that time. And activism's hard too. It's not something that you just like figure out how to do really, at least I didn't. Um, and at least back then in 2006. So it was this weird, you know, learning about the climate science while I was doing astrophysics, um, feeling, tr- talking to people, feeling like social gaslighting. My dad at that time was deep in climate denial. So we had conversations on the phone that go for hours and hours and hours. Um, So it was that weird mix of like trying to figure out activism before climate activism was really a thing. um, Learning about the science and feeling gaslit all at the same time and wondering like, am I, did I get something wrong? Like maybe I misunderstood the science. And then I'd read more science. be Like, no, I totally understand this. So how come no one's talking about it? It was a very surreal time and it took me, um, another like four years of kind of that before I got so sort of afraid of what was coming that I'm like, I have to do something. I gotta make some change. And I'm like, well, I'm still flying in planes. I'm still, you know, burning lots of fossil fuel. I don't even know how much I'm burning. So one night I just like got down, just got on the internet, Googled like how much, you know, how much carbon dioxide, how much climate impact from natural gas you know how much from flying in planes how much from driving in a car like how much does burning one gallon of gasoline put up into the atmosphere and i um made a pie chart of like all the stuff i did in a year right like how much i flew i estimated the miles for that year 2010 estimated how much i drive Uh, i did a lot of research on this was all in a couple of hours i tried to figure out like how much came from food which was one of the biggest uncertainties back then a lot of research has been done since then but in 2010 it was still kind of not it was sort of new territory the like climate impact from agriculture and food but i did my best i made a pie chart and i was shocked and and i thought at that time i was like man i got to put solar panels on my roof it turned out that flying, which I'd never even thought about, was like 75% of my emissions at that time. And like electricity was tiny. It was like the least, out of like the seven categories I looked at, it was the smallest. So then I just kind of like started reducing because it's it felt gross to burn the stuff to me. Like I just didn't like the, knowing that it was heating the planet and having at that time then two sons. So I had another son born um, in 2008, about like a year and a half later. Um, And so, you know, knowing that it was heating up the planet, knowing what it was going to do for the future, it just felt kind of gross or sort of a little bit disgusting kind of, I guess. I know that's a strong word, but that's just how it sort of felt to me. So that motivated me to reduce my emissions. And then what I discovered was I liked it better. (laughs) Like, you know, the gardening and the biking, like I got healthier. Um, I used to have these really bad sinus infections. Every time I got a cold, I would get the sinus infection that would last for and basically until I took antibiotics. and It was really not a lot of fun. The biking like totally got rid of that, which was a real surprise. And so, um, you know, all the things I was doing to reduce my emissions were kind of like a lot of fun and they weren't as bad as everyone sort of made them seem like they would be. And that's what drove me to, wrote the, to write the book because I didn't hear anyone saying that at the time. Like no one was like, it could actually be like, great to use less fossil fuel. And I was hoping, so again, I'm a scientist. I do all these experiments to try to see what will make social change. And, and I'm like, wow, this is like, this is really surprising information that reducing the using less fossil fuel could actually lead to more community, more friendships, like a feeling of satisfaction, more connection, that's healthy, being healthier, saving money, all of that stuff. Like I want that message to get out. And maybe it'll be socially transformative. You know, maybe if we stop this this thing of like, so the sacrifice—it's horrible. You know, you know, living without fossil fuels is going to be some horrible thing. Um, maybe the real the truth about that—that that it's not so bad—could be transformative. So that motivated motivated me to write the book, um, and it turned out it wasn't transformative. <laughs> what do you mean so I did the, experiment. Very, the a very like people even today they like when they fly they don't fly less they just kind of like ask me permission they're like i'm so sorry i've got to take this flight i'm like i'm not yeah, the I'm person going to tomorrow. Whether i was going to ask you about that like,
0: yeah. i was going to ask you, you know, what am i supposed to, i'm going to support nina turner the planet will be better if she's in congress what am i supposed to do ride my well, bicycle so you
1: you have to make your own decisions um you know uh <laughs> So now that we've got Zoom, you know, like I used to think to myself, well, so 2012 was when I took, and we're getting right into the core of the really socially contentious stuff. So flying really kind of brings out people, uh, people listening right now probably having really strong thoughts about uh, what we're saying about flying. I know, I
0: was thinking about that.
1: But But yeah, go ahead.
0: I just want to. I just want to take a moment to bring everybody up to speed so that okay. we can really... Um, really I'm giving you hear. the
1: long form answers too. so. I no, can... the
0: long form answers are good. I just want to make sure everybody really gets the bigger uh, pieces of the narrative here. So Peter is a scientist, hardcore climate scientist, works for NASA, Harvard, Columbia. I mean, this is the serious climate scientist, but he realized and he he lives, as I said, that in order to be An activist in the 21st century, everybody knows the data. His whole book and all of the environmental movement is about how we absolutely must stop fossil fuel extraction. But what Peter has come to understand and what I think we've all come to understand is that just having that data is not enough and just trying to convince people intellectually is not enough we have to go deeper we have to go deeper and it has to begin with our own lives Uh, he he calls the book being the change and of course we all know the allusion to gandhi we must be the change we wish to see happen in the world because gandhi said the end is inherent in the means We are the means. Everything we do is infused with the consciousness with which we do it. So when Peter talks about how, and there are beautiful parts in the book where he really talks about his own spiritual awakening to what he calls the bankruptcy of modern life. And, and, and his, it's a the beautiful part in the book when he talks about how he and his wife bought their house and he got rid of some of the concrete in the background to start uh, the backyard to start planting and what it has meant to him uh, to plant, what it has meant to him to be more of a bicycle rider. And his wife talks about your wife goes, I mean, God bless her. I couldn't go as far as she goes. I mean, it's incredible the, the,
1: really the
0: that you guys go to, to practice what you preach. But even though everybody, we might not all find ourselves able to go quite as far as Peter and his wife go, but reading this book does inspire us to do what we can. So, so I just want to make sure that we're all really clear here that we're talking about these internal changes every yeah. bit as much as the external changes. No, yeah, thank, yes. thank you so
1: much for that. And I, <laughs> so my, I started my meditation practice. So I do a meditation practice called Vipassana. Um, mm-hmm. It's the one where you go on the like 10 day, like silent retreat and you're totally
0: like, quiet and inside yeah. you are totally hysterical yeah <laughs>
1: exactly and, you know after you do a few of them it's, you, you're, you're it's a little bit less of a roller coaster ride but man my first course yeah wow was the biggest roller coaster ride of my life the, the highs were so high the lows were so low and, and you're, you're just like riding that mind. roller coaster for dear life but then as you start to develop that muscle of equanimity which is to not to to be objective about your pleasant sensations and painful sensations and to learn to not prefer one over the other, then it starts to really calm down a lot. And that's that's just, um, that's such a shield. So I, I mean, maybe now we should jump to the, to my latest experiment in social change, which was um, the civil yeah, disobedience. Yeah, the, the,
0: the international science, a uh, scientist yeah, movement civil We could come back. We, yeah, well, I was just gonna say, if, I was just gonna ask for a little two minute thumbnail, if I might. Yeah it's we have to stop fossil fuel extraction give yeah. us a little bit of the hardcore what has to happen by when in terms of the externalities <clears throat> and give me in a real quick 30 yeah. seconds what has to happen by when in order to save the planet
1: yeah so i i push back against the sort of deadline approach okay <clears throat> so so we're at 1.2 degrees celsius above pre- global mean above pre-industrial right so that mm-hmm. probably is not that meaningful to people mm-hmm. but that's that's just think of that as the baseline where we are at now the fires the floods the um you know the heat waves that we're experiencing now which will get you know they'll start to manifest as crop failures multiple crop failures etc so um you know i think a lot of the food inflation could be somewhat already connected we're, we're already seeing famines uh, crop up in parts of the global south um, so 1.2 degrees celsius where we're at now to me it's clearly not a safe level like coral reefs are dying that's one of the things that i study um, rainforests are dying the sierra nevada forest that i love in um, the california mountains they are dying right now so we took a we took a backpacking trip last summer for five days um, on the john muir trail a few summers before that we did almost all of the john muir trail and in just those few years there was tree more there were dead trees that had died from one trip to the other and i just couldn't the whole time we were walking for five days just walking through this this forest with brown trees everywhere and all the pacific that people didn't seem to even notice but i was just like grieving so anyway so this is where we're at now 1.2 degrees celsius i don't think it's safe most affected peoples especially in the global south they've already been dying from this. Uh, they're on the front lines. It's certainly not safe for them. So the it's not too late to stop. We can still save everything we can, but every fraction of a degree that it gets hotter will bring more impacts, will bring more death, will bring more suffering, will bring more loss of ecosystem, which is all irreversible essentially. We can talk a little bit about that. We're increasing at about one-tenth of a degree uh, every five years. So two-tenths of a degree in 10 years. We're on track basically to break 1.5 degrees Celsius in the early 2030 timeframe. Um, this has often been said to be like a quote-unquote safe level of global heating. I push back against that because, again, I don't think we're safe at 1.2 degrees. And I think 1.5 degrees is going to be even worse than is currently thought and even worse than what is scientifically projected because the projections have been uniformly kind of underrepresenting the impacts. So the heat dome event um, in the Pacific Northwest, that took the whole climate science community by surprise. So a lot of us are feeling that we're already at a level of earth breakdown, which is coming sooner than we expected. So that's why I think even 1.5 degrees Celsius is not gonna be safe. You can estimate how much more fossil fuel we can burn and, and with a certain <laughs> probability of staying under 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's roughly how much we would burn in about five years if we keep at current rates.
0: Okay. But,
1: but So what I'm saying is we, we need to start thinking in terms of emergency mode, forget about net zero by 2050. I believe we have to go much, much quicker than that. And the bottom line is um, it's not too late. We can still save a lot on this planet. We've lost a lot and I grieve about that every day. And I think more people are start, going to start realizing what we've lost and they will be grieving too, but we have to fight like hell to save what we can still save. So I, Okay. yeah.
0: Are you going to go? And so you got together with all these international scientists. I know you want to yeah. get there, but I want to make sure we don't lose anybody in the conversation. So these what you were just talking about was the emergency measures that we need to that we need to take. You're Switching about to talk about
1: emergency mode as a society. Yeah,
0: right. To yeah. really move into mass mobilization, much as exactly. we during a World War Completely different
1: way of exactly. come out of incrementalism, <clears throat> come out of these like far future deadlines, and go into all right, this is life or death what can we what can we get rid of in 2023 to reduce emissions by 10% right how are we going to do that what are we going to do in 2020 what's the roadmap right right
0: well so the problem we have is that America has lost its ability at least temporarily uh, to respond to emergencies yes. uh, Pearl Harbor happened. We knew it was an emergency. Uh, Roosevelt called for mass mobilization. Congress went, went along with it. The people of the United States went along with it. Um, today, there's such a cheapening of language that, you know, we call it an emergency if, you know, J-Lo and Ben break up. Right. Um, to really recognize the kind of emergency that is threatening to life on the planet. And then, of course, to get our economic and political system, who should be leading the charge to stop mm-hmm. obstructing Exactly. Uh, the charge. So well start with this extraordinary uh, effort. Now, were you the were you the one who came up with the idea of this mass show of uh, civil disobedience on the part of climate scientists around the world?
1: No, no, I did not start Scientists Rebellion. I had a similar <laughs> idea several years ago, but I'll be honest: like until pretty recently, I wasn't personally ready to take that level of risk. So, okay, um, go
0: back, talk from the beginning, because yeah. not everybody has seen the video. Tell us exactly what happened.
1: Okay, so what happened on April 6th? That's so two days after the IPCC report comes out. Um, we we met at Pershing Square in Los Angeles, which is- Tell like everybody
0: where, what the IPCC report is, please.
1: So, that, so the Working Group 3 report <clears throat> is the report that sort of says, you know, how humanity can, what humanity should do to avoid- the impacts that the Working Group 2 report talked about due to the earth system changes that the Working Group report talked about. So this is the one that's really talking about social justice, it's talking about innovation in the technology sector, it's talking about reducing energy, overall energy use and demand. And then it has some hokey stuff like carbon capture and storage, which I think is like the most, should, has no place, it's purely speculative. And it has no, that kind of speculation has no place in a scientific report, but we, we can talk about that. But there's like, there's also a lot of good things about it. One of the things it says, kind of the top line thing, is that basically to avoid climate catastrophe, and they do phrase it in terms of like two degrees Celsius of global heating, which I think will be completely catastrophic. But to have a chance of staying under even two degrees, we have to have a complete moratorium on new fossil fuel infrastructure now. Okay, everybody,
0: I just want to stop. Hold on. Everybody, please. It's so important that everybody really gets that because this is a change in the conversation. Peter, correct me if I'm wrong. Where we have to go into our consciousness is we must stop all fossil fuel extraction now.
1: Well, so we have. No. What we need to do now is we need to stop all new fossil fuel. All products. new, yeah. All
0: right. We That's, have to ramp down.
1: We have to ramp down existing stuff as quickly as we can. Like I was saying before. That's what the, 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 just, rep-
0: the just transition.
1: That's right. Yes, and mm-hmm. and we have to we de- so and this is not some like kind of left you know utopian thing. This is highly pragmatic. It has to be just and equitable because otherwise. The, the working classes will not come on board. They will fight it. So this happened bit, we saw this happen with the uh, Yellow Jacket protests. Like it's so clear. If you if you have like a carbon tax, for example, it sounds great, Pigovian tax. We'll, nice. we'll solve this by making gasoline really expensive. And that's all you do guess mm-hmm. who gets squeezed? Guess who can't drive to right, the job? Of the working of class. And so what do they do? They start rioting. They start breaking windows. They hate it. They don't want to see this policy. And you've, you've suddenly, because the rich, the ultra rich weren't able to throw any bone to the working class, you've delayed climate action by another four years because you okay. have to. Yeah. And then there's, but one more thing though, too. Another reason it's pragmatic is not only do you have to, to take care of the working class within your own country, you have to get an international cooperation going right so how is india which has done almost nothing to cause this problem they've got a billion people there they're much poorer than us and we're going to be like um you know follow like we're not going to give you anything but you have to stop fossil fuels like they react with extreme anger to that so we need uh, equity and climate justice across international borders as well it's just pragmatic it's so yeah. yes it's the right thing to do but we don't stand a chance of actual climate action unless we do that.
0: Yeah, but it's more than this paternalistic, we need to be nice to these people so they don't get angry. I think it's beyond that. It's we have to to recognize that this is how people make a living, that thousands and thousands and thousands of people make a living at jobs, which are at least uh, indirectly associated with the fossil fuel industry.
1: Oh, that, yeah, yes. There's a moral imperative there. That's the easiest thing to take care of, I think, because, you know it would be like a the tiniest little fraction of the cost of the transition to just say like yeah okay if you're a worker not a, not a ceo I, I think those guys should be in prison but if you're a worker in the fossil fuel industry then yeah we will guarantee a free training for you into the renewable sector and we will guarantee you a job that pays at least as well as what you're making in the fossil fuel industry. There's, there's not that many. I mean, you could do that with just a little bit of money and it would be the right thing to do. And then they would be hopefully on board. I mean, a lot of those jobs, the fossil fuel jobs are like coal mining jobs are not good jobs. Like people die really young in those jobs.
0: Well, and also a lot of the transitional jobs, when you say free training, it's, it's the same expertise in manufacturing and engineering and um, and research. A lot of it is, you know, it's like you were talking about being at the Jet Propulsion Lab. I've been up at Livermore where they've said, listen, we would love to be doing something with our skill and our expertise other than making nuclear bombs. It's just that this is where the grants come from. So it's yeah. the same. It's just repurposing all the genius and the skill uh, that we have in this country towards life producing rather than death producing results.
1: But- And Marianne, what what you've just where you brought this conversation makes it so clear that what's really stopping climate action is the elites, the rich, those in power right now. They're not willing to like relinquish even one cent of their wealth. They still want to build up their wealth. It would be so easy. To throw these to make to make these policies that protected the working class that protected fossil fuel workers that you know in COP twenty six they weren't even willing I think the number was fifty million dollars that the global north wanted to like put in a pot to the to give to the global south which is an absolutely insulting number but they That's couldn't so even good. scrape that That's together good. so it's this like complete unwillingness to to recognize that we're all humans on this planet and that. It's not lip service anymore whatsoever to say that we're all in this together. I mean, that's the pale blue dot. It's a spaceship, it's this, well, this oasis, this beautiful, but it's a spaceship in, yeah. in this cold, dark void and we're all on it together.
0: I, I, I do want to say a little something about your, the comment you just made about quote unquote rich people. Not every rich person is a greedy bastard. Uh, there are a lot of very rich environmentally minded people and also, as you said yourself, it's not just the rich people that are obstructing the change. It's many of the people who are not rich that continue to vote for people who are basically you know, whores to the fossil fuel industry. So it has to do as much with the money in the system, uh, in our political system. I just think it's so important that we not personalize Um, if we set it up only as rich versus poor rather than corporatocracy versus the people, then I think we're going to have, well,
1: I I do want to push back against that a little bit. I think that, you know, every billionaire is a policy failure. It's like, those are astronomical. They're flying on their private
0: jets for sure. Right.
1: And also I would say that like how much money does one person actually need in their accounts. Right. So there's so many people in this country that like can't even afford food and um, I don't know. I, I think that a rich person that that really did get sort of what was happening right now on the planet and to the poor people, they would be basically giving it away until they weren't ultra rich. But it, anymore.
0: A, a lot of I mean, I, so, I, I realize yeah. there are a lot of greedy bastards out there, but you know, every yeah. time somebody says that about billionaires, I think about Oprah Winfrey and how much good she's done for the world. Um I'm not trying to to uh, in any way defend a system where such a massive transfer of wealth has resulted in 735, I think, billionaires in this country. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to in any way defend that. I'm just trying to um, keep the conversation so that we're about the systems rather than uh, personal demonization. Well, right. Because so that's where we get our sort of,
1: you I, know, civil I, I war would mentality. Say, I would say that this, uh, this massive wealth um inequality that we have right now which has grown massively just in the last couple of years that that is itself a system so yeah i don't you know yeah, I,
0: okay I, you don't, you and i don't disagree about that at all absolutely yeah. i'm yeah. not oh, i'm not here an apologist for well you know. it's, it's
1: actually very similar to the flying question right so you can still fly i i choose not to fly in planes because it feels just too kind of disgusting to me. So how I'm, am I
0: supposed uh, to get to Cleveland tomorrow? How would well, you get to Cleveland? Let me finish. One? Okay.
1: So, um, so so I personally had chosen not to because it just feels too. I just don't like it, um, and nothing has come along that has risen to that level that would get me onto a plane. Mm-hmm. Like I think I would actually mm-hmm. probably feel nauseous. Mm-hmm. But even if you fly on planes, you could still be an advocate for not having an aviation system. You could say like, all right, so we're in a climate emergency, um, you know we we need to change systems so that we don't have to fly to places and part and we, we eventually have to ramp down the aviation system entirely right people lived it was only a few decades ago that we didn't have a commercial aviation good system point. and somehow people did stuff
0: that's a very right? good point but aren't yeah. they now developing jet biofuel I mean isn't that going to happen you know
1: um the so I, I can say this with quite a bit of authority from having driven a vegetable oil car for a long time and Picked up vegetable oil from you know sushi restaurants and Mexican restaurants. There's just not enough veggie oil, so you could have a few flights going, um, but you couldn't have aviation at the scale we have it now on vegetable oil. You just can't. And then we, you know, I was using waste vegetable oil. You can't grow, uh, you know, biofuels specifically for transportation because we we have another problem, which is biodiversity loss. Right. So we've already basically covered the entire planet with agriculture and human settlement, et cetera. So we can't do more of that. We have to actually pull back and let wild places start to recover. So right. what one way, the two ways we could have commercialization potentially. So one is batteries have to get about 10 times better. And by, by that I mean they have to have about 10 times as much energy. They have to be 10 times lighter. So you have to have the same amount of energy but and one tenth of the mass so that okay. it can actually go on a plane because planes have to be light so they can fly. So right now the batteries are way too heavy for long distance flights. You can have electric powered planes that go for a few hundred miles, but you'd be better off taking a train anyway.
0: Okay. So, because I know you want to get to the climate action. Yeah. Okay. So before we get to the international climate scientists, (laughs) of civil disobedience, I know you want to talk about, and then all of us want to hear about, um, since not all of us are going to immediately stop all flying on planes. uh, One of the things about Yeah, one of the things about the book is that it really does talk about the seemingly smaller, but no less important things that all of us can do There's bicycle riding that we can sort of get it it becomes a lifestyle change. You talk about bicycles, you talk about gardening, uh, you talk about meditation and one of the things about meditation that's so important is that it, it. creates within us the ability to take on the assault on the nervous system that all this breakdown is causing anything Mm -hmm. else that you want to mention in terms of these personal changes, you talk about going vegetarian, if even for a month.
1: Right. so, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I ended up becoming vegetarian. I just I did again, I, I think about things in terms of experiments. So I did an experiment mm. being a vegetarian for a month, and I liked it better. So I just kept doing it. Um, okay. so again, what I was hoping that doing these things that I like and that I do encourage everyone to do these kinds of personal changes, a lot of them are great. Also, by the way, I co-founded a free app called Earth Hero, which can help guide people and as they Okay, make called what Earth Hero?
0: Earth Zero?
1: No Earth Hero. H E R O Earth. Oh,
0: okay, great. Yeah, so it's okay. on like
1: the app store and whatever kind of device you have, you can get it. Okay, and, and I, I do encourage people to make these changes in their lives because they're they're great. But what I've again, what I've learned by doing that experiment and by going on a bunch of radio shows after my book came out, I was hoping that you know a large fraction of humans would be like, oh, this is great. Like, of course, we're going to start doing that and be kind of inspired to make those changes. That it could actually be a meaningful sort of like chunk out of emissions and i was just frankly wrong about that like Maybe a fraction of 1% of people no, have actually. No, no,
0: no, 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 It's, it's, like it's I an experiment. You, I I've been pushing you. on, no, it. I'm no, pushing on no. it. You know, when, when this climate action, uh, occurred yeah. and I saw you on Twitter, I Oh no, it's not getting any coverage in the corporate media. I think I DM'd you, Peter, Peter, <laughs> it's having an effect. You know, you never know who's no. listening.
1: You on Twitter, know. sometimes you want to say those things too, just to try to get more out through social media you know what I yeah mean? maybe so um it's okay, what so- if that was true you know it wasn't getting <laughs> covered in, in the mainstream media and I, I do think that's an important thing to say because again a leverage point I think trying to fix that corporate climate denial if we could get the mainstream media to really talk about this the way we're talking about it now as an actual emergency and we have to transform society right now it's just another story it's like um world on track to become unlivable story page three like that's how the la times literally reported it that way on tuesday april 5th the day after um the ipcc report came out so so i do think it's important to hammer on that sort of you know, subtle climate denial in the mainstream media, because it helps once once the media is really talking about this the way we're talking about it, the the movement, the climate movement, the activism movement can really start to take off. But right, so also, yeah.
0: there are more yeah. and more articles about how the defense industry and the Pentagon, yeah. the, the carbon emissions that come from that yeah. are greater than from anything, along with animal agriculture, et cetera.
1: Fascinatingly, right. fascinatingly too, um mm-hmm. the Pentagon is they're not climate deniers at all. They know what's going to come and how political, politically destabilizing it and will try. be. And people have tried to use that as a communication wedge to talk to conservatives, but somehow it hasn't worked. Um, but it's really true, you know, like the 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 the, the military uh is anything but climate in climate denial. They more than almost anyone, they they realize that this is gonna be a huge military and geopolitical threat going forward, and they're correct about that.
0: So tell us about the great act of civil disobedience on the part of international climate scientists all over the planet.
1: So this is the latest experiment that I'm trying, right? And so I've been thinking about Satyagraha for a really long time. Um, I want to say from the get-go that satyagraha is best paired with something called a constructive program. So you don't want to just be like bashing the system as it is, but you also want to start building an alternative and putting a narrative of an alternative out into uh, the world, right? So that there's something to go towards. Um, but anyway, um, this this civil disobedience is an act of satyagraha, which is the the kind of like sort of tip of the spear for creating social change. And um, and
0: that's everyone. Just to, when he says satyagraha, that is a Gandhian principle right. um, of soulful action uh, of the creation of and soul force. Gandhi called it soul force. Uh, for the creation of of, of external change. And I think this is such a big deal because so many people who have been involved in spiritual change have remained apolitical because they don't want to enter into the toxicity uh, and the corruption of the political system. But remember, we're not here to bring the light to the light. We're here to bring the light to the darkness. You take the light with (laughs) you through Satyagraha. Okay, go on. Well,
1: yeah. And the thing about my meditation practice too is you're, you're absolutely right. So I've not found anything that kind of like can, um, assuage me of climate anxiety, like meditation can. And so I, I climate grief is, a. Uh, this will probably surprise a lot of people for me to say this, but climate grief is a good thing. It's a, it comes out of, it kind of comes out of a place of love. So if, if you see something that's being lost, something that you love, like coral reefs or like a forest or like, you know, your kid's futures in some sense like to grieve over that it's for me at least the way i experience is this sharp pain of um of like love of like this kind of like opening up through my chest but it's a kind of like on a painful sort of level because it comes it has an element of attachment to the thing that is in danger or is being lost but it's so motivating it makes me fight that it only lasts it doesn't usually last very long those like intense feelings of grief, but there's, they make me want to fight so much harder. Now, anxiety, on the other hand, couldn't be more different. Anxiety is this low level thing that makes me feel confused, makes me not able to write. Like I completely can't write. I can't do scientific research when I'm deep in climate anxiety, but fortunately the um, meditation practice, that anxiety comes a lot from attachment to self. And that's not something that I can really maybe let people understand through words. But when you start to have less of that feeling of self and that attachment to self, which is what the Vipassana practice does. So uh, let me just say really quickly this particular practice, the main technique, there's sort of three techniques, all right? So one is focusing on the breath just to, to help focus the mind, the primary technique, is to scan the body and be aware of bodily sensations, whether they're pleasant, tingling sensations or painful sensations, they're all impermanent, they're changing constantly. And you experience that in your own body, you experience that thoughts constantly changing, they arise, they pass away, and that there's nothing really solid to hold on to in this thing called Peter and this thing called Marianne. It's just this constantly changing mind matter phenomenon. And once you really start experiencing that, and especially if you can sustain that experience over the course of 10 days, it really starts to change you and just like crack you open because it's that attachment to self. That's where fear of death comes from. That's where fear comes from. That's where a sense of competition. That's where a sense of separation from other people comes from. So when you start to dissolve that, you just, I think our natural state is to be kind of a wash in love and compassion and meta. And that's the third practice is that you give this this loving kindness, you project it to all other beings. Um you could and this will this will get me in trouble, but um even beings that aren't on earth, okay. Um okay. I'm pretty sure I, this is I a crowd that you can <laughs>
0: say that with.
1: I was, I was an astrophysicist for eight years. I know how many stars there are. I know how many galaxies there are out there, how many planets there are out there. I'm quite certain that we're not the only life in this universe. And to me, it's fascinating. It's just such a beautiful thing. When you're giving meta, you can give meta to people who've irritated you. You can get give meta to your partner, to your children. You can give meta to trees and to forests and to animals on this planet. You can give meta that goes outside of this planet, just projecting. So you feel these vibrations, right? That you've been meditating with and that are impermanent. And then you sort of fill those with this love and kindness. And then you give meta to yourself and what you start which which took me many years before I even realized, oh wait, I can give myself love and kindness. I actually, when I first realized that I kind of broke down because I had so much like self-hatred that something really big cracked when i realized that you could give meta to yourself and that you can be like you know you're not perfect but you're trying really really hard to to you know make things better and anyway well, is- too, when you give meta you realize that other beings other humans maybe other beings are giving meta back to you and they don't even know you and it's such a beautiful thing to realize that the universe is actually awash in this meta this loving kindness this compassion Well, if you
0: go if you take it all the way there really <clears throat> is no separation between you and others so what that's you right. give to others you are giving to yourself i can't stand the fact that mark zuckerberg took that word uh but you can oh, still yeah. use it well meta is,
1: i think it's with two t's but maybe so it's good exactly that he's using the word where words. you see meta every
0: yeah. time you open your computer um, that's true I, I, that I want,
1: is really that's actually really annoying i hadn't really thought about that yeah they about know. but that
0: hold on i want to go back a little bit to <laughs> what yeah. you were saying before about um, the difference between climate despair climate grief and climate anxiety yes very uh, different things yeah, well, yeah. this is so important. This is why I've had a conversation for so long with people about the overprescription of antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, being sad about something is a functional, not a dysfunctional response no. when something is sad. There's a story yeah. about a Buddhist monk who was crying at his uh, yeah. master's grave. Somebody said to the Buddhist monk, well, I thought you were enlightened, why are you crying? And his <laughs> response was, I am sad. <laughs> um, we've taken this cheap yellow smiley face Uh, and thrown it over everything. I've been saying for years, uh, if you're looking at the state of the world today and you're not depressed, what is wrong with you? Uh, Numbing everybody out so that they don't get like what an emergency we're in is part of the problem. Carl Jung um, said, all neurosis is a substitute for legitimate suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think that the issue of real climate uh, despair and not only despair about the climate, despair about the constant war machine, despair about the, uh, global inequality, economic and otherwise is um, a cause for legitimate suffering, true yes. suffering.
1: And um, for grief and, and for and and grief. For and, yeah, and, and for as we
0: And as we mm-hmm. avoid that, we mm-hmm. become caught up in little ultimately unimportant uh, mm-hmm. micro pain. Uh, micro pains that of course make so many people in the world look at us with rolled eyes
1: so the earth is suffering right now and um one of the things that kind of I knew maybe more intellectually and then this action I really experienced this in a very strong way is that um you know I think I I think probably a lot of climate activists share this experience but I really feel like kind of a spokesperson for the earth or like just part of the Peter,
0: and you're an awfully good one
1: well, part, I, I am the earth, right? And I'm speaking for the earth. So it's not about me. Um, and that is, that takes away the fear too, um, to, 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 to not make it about you, but to just be like, all right, so I've been, you know, I've been kind of called and it's, it's, it's a sense of, it's, it comes from a sense of gratitude, right? So we, we literally owe everything that we have to this planet, right? It's, I'm deeply in love with this planet. Um, in a very real sense, like when I walk in the mountains, um, and I did that from a young age. And there was this moment that I haven't shared very much. Um, when I was building trail in Northern New Mexico with a, with a group of other kind of high school kids. And it was uh, nighttime and I was in my tent. And I had to go pee and it was probably like 2 a.m. or something. So I walked a few hundred yards to the place where we're working on the trail. And I just lay down on this fresh trail with all the smells of earth and the rocks that we've been chipping and looked up at the stars and all the trees like around me and just had this like crazy experience of connection. And um, that, that was another moment that kind of like cracked me open. And um, I realized ever since then. So from, from when I was a kid that I'm, I'm like in love with this planet in a real way, like in a, not just in a, that's not like a euphemism or anything. Like it's real. And I feel so much gratitude for this planet. And so to be, to feel called to stand up for it is uh, it's the greatest honor. And um, then you have no fear. Like, and, and I said this during the action when I was like giving my talk, like, Um, This is so much bigger than any one of us. This is so much bigger than my job at NASA. No offense, NASA, I love you. You're doing great work. I love working for you. But this really is bigger than my job at NASA. This is bigger than you know whether I not go to whether I go to jail or not. This is bigger than whether people like me or not. Um, It's such a it's an honor to be able to give back in this way to this planet and to this earth and to the life on this earth. So so I just wanted to make that very clear. So for me this this civil disobedience was, um, and I think this, I've had done a lot of interviews since that moment, and I haven't really gotten a chance to talk about this, um, about what a spiritual experience it really was for me, how it took several years to basically come up with the courage and to align this with my partner, to get her on board, and then to finally commit to it, and to what an act, to, to how powerful that moment of like oh yeah okay i'm really going to do this and then that's what allowed me
0: Peter hold on tell people exactly what the action was
1: the action was it was very simple it was ridiculously simple we just walked four of us and
0: how many of you were there
1: there were four of us that were risking arrest that day and doing the civil disobedience But weren't there
0: scientists all over the planet doing
1: this? Oh, yeah, see, yeah, this was just in Los Angeles. So there are about a thousand scientists, uh, only a few of them were climate scientists, but there are a lot of scientists around the world, especially in Europe, there's a few in the global south, that that did uh, other actions in other cities on the same day in response to the IPCC report. And by the way, I, I started saying earlier that I had been thinking about civil disobedience and scientists doing civil disobedience for a few years, but I hadn't been personally ready to take that risk myself, which meant that there's no way I could organize other scientists to do it. There was no way I could write about it in a book if I hadn't done it yet. Right. Um, so so the moment I committed, you know, to, to actually really doing it, that was the moment when I could start actually making it happen and organizing it and sort of building these relationships to make mm-hmm. it happen. And um, a few days, well, a few weeks before the action, before April 6th, I actually went and served on a 10-day meditation course, which was the best thing I could have. So I try to go either sit or serve. Serving just means you're cooking the food and washing the dishes and supporting the, the people meditating. And you meditate too. You meditate like three or four hours a day as a server. When you're sitting the course, you meditate like 13 hours a day. It's basically just you eat, you meditate, you sleep when you're sitting the course. So you go very deep. When you're serving the course, you're in this like, kind of rarefied environment of meditation, but you're still interacting with other servers. So egos can mm-hmm. come up. Like, like, oh, how come they didn't ask me to cook that meal? I know how to cook, you know, but it's so great, such a great practice because you catch yourself. You're like, oh, there's my ego. Hello. You know, like um it comes up in the silliest ways and you learn to laugh at it because it's so ridiculously over the top what our egos make us do. But anyway, so I did that. That was the best possible preparation for me than to actually right actually uh, partake in this action. We walked up to the bank. We locked the front doors. There are many other ways for people to get in and out of the bank. So it was a largely symbolic action. And then we locked our wrists with chains and padlocks to the door handles. And tell and people waited.
0: why, wait, wait wait why banks, why these banks? Yes. What is their connection to fossil fuels, et cetera? Lauren, would you please put all this information in the chat about his book? It's about his Twitter, et cetera, the article and so forth. All right, so, tell
1: us. So JP, we chose JPMorgan Chase Bank because it, out of all the banks of the world, it does the most to fund new fossil fuel infrastructure projects. And like I said, before we can't do any more new fossil fuel now we have to ramp down what's already existing a new a new power plant new gas or coal plant new pipeline those things have an average lifetime of 40 years we can't we've got to get off of fossil fuels in a few years we can't afford to still to build new stuff now that has a 40 year uh at united nations secret uh um united nations general secretary secretary general antonio guterres said um that to, to expand fossil fuel infrastructure now is both morally, and it's moral and economic madness. That is the word that he used. And you he's know, he says correct.
0: wonderful things. He must be so depressed. I mean, he's <laughs> Secretary General of the United Nations, to know what's correct, to say what's correct, and to to see how much economic and social and political resistance, institutional resistance there is.
1: Marianne, to he took the gloves off. Itself. Yeah, on, on, he the He's on April. he did. the right stuff. Th- yeah, on April 4th. He another thing that he said, which I which I used as a, the the what is it? the um epitaph? Is that the like quote that's at the top of a chapter or a piece? No, but anyway, the thing the end, right? um, Epigraph, epitaph, I don't remember, yeah, but
0: whatever.
1: I started, I, don't a, I started an op-ed in The Guardian. We're supposed to know these things, you know. Yeah. So, so I, I talked to my editor at The Guardian, and I said, I want to write a piece about this action that I'm going to do in a few days. Would you publish yeah. it? Would you let it come out online the moment that we, started? because I didn't want to give the details and like, you know, clue in the cops as to where we we're doing it. And so I start that piece. It's basically a piece about 800 words about why I was doing this. Because of how right, I have the article here. Hold on yeah. a moment, please. How because um, of my love for my kids, really. Like, I'm not, I'm not an actor. I'm not I'm really not joking about any of this. Like, I'm really I, I'm a parent. I would give my life without hesitation for my kids. The least I could do is lock my wrist to the door handle of JP Morgan Chase, right? So you think about it I that want- way, it's not really that scary anymore to do this. But um, yeah, the ep, the, the the starting quote from Antonio Guterres. Do you want to read it? Do you have the article? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I want
0: to do. He said, climate, this is the Secretary General of the, of the United Nations, everyone, Antonio yeah. Gutierrez. He says, climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels.
1: It's like music to my and, ears. And, the, uh, chefs,
0: the link to that article is in the chat.
1: So what, what a way... me to start an action of civil disobedience where I was taking personal risk, what a way for me to start an op-ed about that action, right? Like he just to me, he just hit it out of the park. He's a hero. He's a client hero. Absolutely. I I, I feel like he might be ready to engage in civil disobedience pretty soon. Yeah, he's the
0: Doc Hammersholt of his generation. Yeah. Yeah. How
1: powerful would that be for him to like get arrested for climate? So in Los
0: Angeles, we all saw the pictures on social media. You were chaining yourself to the doors of JP Morgan and the LAPD sent like a SWAT team out was crazy. to protect America from these four climate sciences right I,
1: the, I mean like boy what a narrative they gave us so I guess I have to thank them for that um, yeah it's such the, an
0: embodiment of how the system is yes.
1: yeah and then you know I I just sat there and for for three hours it took like three or three and a half hours before they finally arrested us so I was I gave a few speeches, but most of the time I was really just sitting there meditating um, and giving meta to the police, meta tutis to the police, um, and just sort of smiling at them because, you know, like like we were talking about before with the flying and with the rich people, it is the whole system that has to change, um, and a lot of us are caught up in this system, and frankly, we're caught up in this ignorance, and the system has its own logic. And the social norms from that system are they're as strong as steel bars and steel barriers. They're yeah. very real, these social norms. Yeah. And so we 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 because of our ignorance, we fall into these channels of these social norms that we can't even see and that maybe we're not even aware of, but they're very, very real. And so we the civil disobedience is bending those bars and pushing against yeah. those norms. That's exactly and that, right. That was the experiment that I wanted to try. And for the first time, it was so successful. So our hypothesis was that climate scientists engaging in this kind of civil disobedience would be a kind of communication, like almost like a brain-to-brain connection to people, right? And cut through all of the noise and all of the bullshit. And it did that. And it inspired, I've gotten so many messages, especially from young people that were, they feel hopeful now for the first time. Because hope doesn't come from people doing positive message. Hope comes from seeing people take risks and do real actions. And real hope will come once these world governments start actually taking meaningful action, which means, uh, like I said before, a roadmap, a plan to very rapidly in an emergency mode, scale down fossil fuels and also things all, things like the uh, animal agriculture industry too, which 15% of the climate crisis comes from that. So 80% from fossil fuel industry. And then we have to take another step. We can, this is like, this is rabbit holes within rabbit holes, right? Which is why it's been such a non-linear conversation. But we also have to start talking about extractive colonialist capitalism as well. Which is another system that, oh, we're that trapped in. Right. So so to go back to rich people and how in some at some level they're trapped in the, the system as well. So we yeah, have an yeah. economic system which is designed to accrue capital. That's why it's called capitalism. Its main goal is to create profit for people that uh, enclose capital, that control capital. We could have an economic system that had a different goal. So changing the goal system is the most powerful, the, the most powerful leverage point for changing a system, right? Donella Meadows had this amazing uh, essay that everyone should read. Who does? Is, uh, uh, Dana Meadows, Donella Meadows.
0: Dana Meadows. So she was I'm one the of the Club of Rome authors.
1: Yeah. Um, so she had this amazing essay called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in the Systems. In, in okay. the system, And the most important one is like changing the goal of the system, changing the paradigm. And right. so we could have an well, the economic whole idea of
0: pro-growth. It should be internal growth.
1: It should growth be internal is, growth and, and growth of capital and, and economic growth, this exponential growth. That should no longer be the goal. The goal Absolutely. should be changed to human flourishing and exactly. to living in balance with the web of life and to flourishing of all life on earth. That's yeah. all. That's the main change that we have to make. And so what we have to do. Once you change that goal, you know hundreds of policies would come that would start. Uh, right now, all the policies align towards accruing capital, the legal system, the advertising system. The the you know, we could change all that to align with human flourishing. You know, justice for all, equitable. You know, everyone flourishing uh, on this planet with the rest of life on Earth. That should be the goal, be, and then all the policies would follow from that.
0: And all it's all a change in purpose.
1: It's you a know, change like when you talk
0: about from a war economy yeah. to a peace economy, from yes. a, a dirty economy to a clean economy, yes. it's changing the purpose. Uh, really recognizing what is the purpose of our lives. And that what's, is to expand right. human flourishing and right. radical right. humanitarianism. We should have a humanitarian rather than an economic bottom line.
1: As a physicist, there's no, nothing in, there's no physical law that says we couldn't do this. It's like, That's right. what's so wrong with peace, love and understanding, right? Like Elvis Costello says, well, also, we could we do just, it. Okay. We just have to do it. It's Man. also when
0: people say we're naive. What's naive right. is to think we can continue on this planet for yes. another hundred years yes. the way we're doing things now. When all these people who represent systems who have taken us to the brink of disaster yes. environmentally, as a democracy, economically, we're six inches from the cliff, and they yes. and they 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 purport to be the ones who are qualified to lead us out of the ditch that they took us into. So along with everything else, there's this radical reappraisal of what it means to be qualified, uh, to rethink, to re-articulate, and to lead the world to a better That's place. right. And you know what, what it Peter? means to be human,
1: too, on this planet, right? Earth, Earth, breakdown, <laughs> Earth breakdown is a wake-up call. It's the Earth saying, all right, you guys um, did this thing, like you experimented with this crazy sort of violent society. Now let's let's talk, come back into the, the embrace of mother nature and it's it would be such a beautiful thing if we could do that I think we I can.
0: I know we can, but we have to do it quickly. And as we you do. said and earlier in this pipe. hour, We're gonna uh, enough, with the, enough yes. with the incrementalism, enough with the incrementalism. We do not have time to take these baby steps. We have yes. to look at this situation with the urgency uh, yes. that really challenges us. Now, I know you have a hard out, so I want to give yeah. uh, people an opportunity to ask questions if I may. Is that okay mm-hmm. with you, yeah, Peter? Yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah, yeah. We've, okay, we've put your hands up enough. if
0: you yeah. want to ask Peter a question. I'm going to begin with Robin, Robin Stryklau. I see that you have a question, go for it
2: hello hello thank you very much you know i really um zeroed in on when you said you know you think you might tell people to do xyz it'll help the planet and it's just a really difficult thing for them and i've had a lot of experience with that and i just put the link to an article i wrote about it um Mm -hmm. in the chat for three years i've been trying to get people to realize to just turn off their engines when they're parked just turn off their engines when they're parked and i'm in california i'm in los angeles a big car you know state and the big car um, city and uh it's taken me three years i did get the city council to um, start to work towards an educational campaign um but this is such an i'm just saying this is such an obvious thing my my articles in, uh subtitled the power of the overlooked obvious and i want to also mention that there's another, uh, before we address any of that i want to mention another overlooked obvious that i hear very little about Nuclear plants are still being built and plan, and plans for them around the world. And, and it, it's very, very dangerous. It's a, a very bad use of our energy and resources. Um, uranium mining is so dangerous. Who wants to live near the waste dumps? You know, it's a terrorist threat, especially with increasingly severe weather. And yet we hardly hear any discussion about that. So there's a few things that I just wanna say we're just not paying attention to. And I remember Marianne said about the boxes in the corner of the room and you just start ignoring them instead of putting away the stuff. There are so many little things like that that are happening now that we are just ignoring. And even if you bring it up, it just you know kind of dissipates in people's minds or consciousness. Well, yeah. yeah. thank Thanks. you.
0: Yeah, ahead, Peter, Mary. I'm really glad Robin
2: brought up the topic of
0: um, nuclear power, because I okay. want to ask you, I, I, I'm yeah. so glad you did that, Robin. Thank you. What are your thoughts? A lot of people say, well, if we're going to make this just transition. We're going to have to have these nuclear power plants. Uh, please tell us your thoughts. Um,
1: I don't I don't think we necessarily need nuclear, but I'm not against it either. So, that, Robin, you'll probably not be happy with that answer. But it's it's actually so the the my main problem with nuclear power is that it's it's been historically very hard to have civil nuclear power without also having nuclear weapons. And I'm very against nuclear weapons. But the nuclear waste problem itself and, um, you know, deaths from nuclear plants themselves are that, in my opinion, is overblown. So the uranium mining is a problem. But when you weigh against uh, earth breakdown, which is mainly driven by climate change, by global heating right now, um, it's, it's not nearly in the same scale as the danger that we're in from actual fossil fuels so okay. i'm against shutting down existing nuclear plants because right now you would replace those with fossil fuels because yeah. we're building out renewables like sort of as fast as we can mm-hmm. but we yeah anyway that's my so i know that's controversial um but that's my No, but
0: it's a good conversation it's good that we're having the conversation yeah. and thank you robin because i i but think we all hear yeah. you both
1: i want i, I want was, to respond to Ro- the first part of robin oh, okay question. and then you i know. want
0: to go back because i know other people right. have their hands i know and, and i'll try to
1: be fast yeah but um, I think the illustration of like how you can't even get people to turn off their cars when they're idling, which would be like 0.0002% of solving climate change anyway, and yet you can't even, and it's painless for them, it saves them money. You can't even get them to do that. I think that illustrates my point, that we have to speak out and do things like civil disobedience and get into good trouble in order to cause the system to change. And then they won't even have engines that are idling, right? So the most people... We're, I don't think we're going to solve this problem fast enough by appealing to people's better natures um, and getting them to voluntarily make these changes, especially when corporations, the fossil fuel industry, the politicians that they own, they do everything possible to to have to make systems that force people to act in these ways, right? Because it's profitable to them. So that's why I really think that, again, in 2010, I was like doing this experiment. I'm like, well, maybe if I joyfully reduce my emissions, so many people will be inspired by that, that it'll make an impact. And I'm telling you just straight up, I did that experiment, the results came in, I was wrong. It's not the the quickest path to social change. I did the experiment of civil disobedience, very simple thing of locking my wrist to a door handle for a couple of hours. And it had an incredible impact around the world. It went viral. It gave people hope. It sort of gave, you know, the old scientists were not just me, gave sort of new life yeah. to the climate movement, I think. So, well, so the, word, those two experiments, very different results.
0: The word you used earlier that I've been thinking about and talking and writing about a lot is courage. We mm-hmm. have the data. And now we all have to ask ourselves whether or not we have the courage to, right. to really step out of our comfort zones enough. Yes. Um, Thank you enough. for that. That's, that's, a, that's absolutely right. Step.
1: People yeah, ask absolutely. me, how can I be a climate activist? I get that question all the time. So probably people in this chat are thinking that question. Mm-hmm. And I used to give a series of guidelines like join a group, talk about it a lot, you know, um, you'll get really creative, uh, use your network, all that stuff, which is good advice. But the truth is, you have to figure that out yourself. It is sort of a spiritual thing. Like you, the, the whole point of being an activist is that you're, you're pushing the movement. You're not getting pulled by the movement, right? You're yeah. actually thinking at yourself, like where can I contribute and figuring that out? And one of the critical things there is to actually take risks. So to push against those bars of those social norms, um, you can't push against those since we're such deeply social creatures without getting those butterflies in your stomach. So if you're not taking some risks then you're not actually pushing against those social systems. So to be an activist, it means, you know, figuring out kind of coming up with your own way of doing that, being creative, and then taking risks.
0: And don't expect to be
1: popular. Yeah, don't so expect you'll to be rewarded. popular with people you respect <laughs>
0: boy. Am I, right. I, I know a little about that. Okay, Joan Haldon, I see your hand is up.
3: I thank you all for, for this great moment, um, which we all really need to be talking about. I'm wondering two things um One on Biden's recent uh, decision to uh, release, do leases on federal land, what is your, and his explanation of why, I just wondered if you're buying it, number one. And then number two, um, climate change uh, envoy, John Kerry doesn't seem to be having a really successful time. And I'm wondering um, what you think of um, his
2: position. Yeah, so
1: the first one, I am so against any expansion of fossil fuels at this point. Uh, you know, I think the Biden administration should be using the bully pulpit to sell a transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. It would create so many jobs. It would give clean air to people. Um, you have to do it, like I said, many, many times in a way that's just and that, you know, make sure that working class and most affected peoples oh, are not,
0: not being hurt? squeezed
1: by it. Uh, am I not being heard?
0: Hold on, Peter. I can hear I'm him. not hearing him. Are you hearing him? Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm getting nods I'm from the audience. I'm
0: not hearing him. But if everybody know. else is oh <laughs> okay, okay, now I can. I'm can sorry, God, I wasn't with you for a minute. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, we are back.
1: Okay, so so anyway, um, I think Biden he's currently using the bully pulpit to sell fossil fuel expansion, which is so backwards. So I know he's got a lot of political forces. Um, it's very hard to 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 have a moratorium. But the first step is to use the bully pulpit to sell this to the American people. It should be an easy sell and he's not doing it. So that makes me think really, I don't think he understands how serious this is. I don't, he kept saying over and over again that he listens to the scientists. I'm not buying that he's listening to the scientists because I've never once felt like he truly understands what a catastrophe we're heading towards and what this is going to mean for our kids young people are freaking out about this and rightfully so and again positive messaging is not going to you know help them with their climate depression they you know they might start having suicidal thoughts about because of earth breakdown. What's going to help them is if the government actually starts selling this transition to the people. He should be doing a a full-scale education campaign with billboards, with TV ads. The best people in the PR business, the best people in the advertising business, put that machine, which is currently destroying the planet, into service to selling this transition to the American people so that you actually build political feasibility. I mean, come on, it's not rocket science.
0: Those PR I'm firms so are working for the American Petroleum Institute and so right. forth. Um uh, uh, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. So what about real quickly before we go to the next question? Uh what about Joan's question
1: about John Kerry? So I don't not really sure. I haven't been following that closely what John Kerry's doing, but I get the same sense from him, from him that he he's I don't think he talks about it or thinks about it the same way I do. Like I've 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 transformed my whole life, my career, for going from astrophysics. I used to love playing music. I gave that up when I switched into earth science because I just didn't have time. Like it was so demanding to make that scientific transition, and then to be an activist, like having a second full-time job, chaining myself to banks and risking arrest. I mean, I that's the. I think an envoy for for climate change to the world should really be that level of passion and that level of commitment and i think he's still flying around in private jets and i know like yeah okay maybe he has no but really like that that's a reflection of the mentality which is i think the problem which is kind of manifesting this in action throughout the world
3: yeah i've heard that he may be resigning
1: Yeah, I I can't speak to that. Yeah, Yeah, I
3: I, I have
0: a little bit of um, anecdotal gossip level information there, and I I have heard that he's one of the people within the administration who's finding it very.
1: Gina McCarthy as well. There are some rumors. I heard her on.
0: What's Deb Holland thinking? I mean, here we have this Native American woman who was the Interior Secretary. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and he's there's, drilling there's, on public land.
1: There's a lot of rationalization going on that like mm-hmm. at least they have a seat at the table that they can make some difference. I honestly think they might make more difference by no. just quitting and disgust. Because yeah, that performative. Be such a yes, I agree yeah. with
0: you. Why didn't she resign yeah. that day? It's all performative. How right. dare you use me? And my if native, they do that my name, heritage would, to sell this crap.
1: If they did quit and discuss, they would get such a huge platform that they could use yeah. that to push from yeah. the outside. I agree with you. Yeah. When
0: I heard her say the other day about the oil drilling that the taxpayer deserves a return on their investment, oh I thought, God. is this a democratic administration? Ugh. What 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 is going on? It here? really
1: is like don't look up. I mean that movie it is, it hit is. The nail on the head.
0: And you're right. If she quit, think of what a platform she'd have.
1: Exactly. I
0: I, I know you have a hard out. I have to respect that, and I want to get Good. to people. So Matthew. A more. Okay. Hi,
1: it's a great conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious, like if you know what the science says, or if you have any thoughts about people like Paul Hawkins' work, spotlighting all the creative ideas related to to drawdown of carbon and regeneration. Yeah. The thing that excited me the most about Drawdown is that the number one solution is empowering women around the world. I thought that was so amazing and so powerful. And there's so many good reasons for that. And there's so much research that looks at it. It's just like a win, win, win for everyone. So that I hadn't really thought about that before I read Drawdown. And I was like blown away by that. And we should be talking about that more. Yeah.
0: Well that's also well, the number one factor in creating a more peaceful world is greater right. and more economic opportunities go ahead, Matthew. Matthew. You want to say?
1: Well, I'm reading this new his new book, Regeneration, and he's talking about like kelp for growing kelp forests in the ocean to pull down mm. carbon, growing like ferns and just all these kind of like things. No. And, you know, I'm not no, no, not not I'm not a fan of that kind of stuff at all. It's just it's just a distraction. We have to go straight to the cause, which is the fossil fuel industry, 80%. the animal agriculture industry that's like all of this stuff carbon capture um geoengineering planting trees you can't plant trees in a place that's too freaking hot and dry for trees Mm -hmm. anymore right it's a it's a it's a non-solution it's a distraction from the real solutions so stop dancing around the issue we need a roadmap year by year what are we going to change how are we going to and you know it's called the green new deal Yes, and to and you know again, I know like you're sensitive about hammering on the rich people, but they really the, no, the, no, the lion's share of emissions Beautiful. on our planet. <laughs> you you know the, what's the statistic like the one one percent of humans emit like fifty percent. I don't remember the exact numbers. I know one percent of humans are responsible for fifty percent of aviation emissions. It's probably roughly the same for overall emissions. So we we do have to have this discussion about you know um, how to like. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit there, right? Because because the, the the richest people use so much energy. So we have to have a plan. 2020, 2023. What are we gonna? How are we gonna get that 10% reduction? 2024. What are we gonna do to get that 10% reduction? We have to constantly revisit that. Meanwhile, the the hardest 10% or 20% that's gonna come later after several years. While we're doing the low hanging fruit, we can be developing technology in ways. It's like when you go for a hike and you're climbing up to the top of a mountain, you can't see the mountain peak, but you have to start climbing and you, you'll get to the first false peak, you'll learn more, you learn more. We can't see how to get all the way to 100% ending fossil fuel industry, but we know the first 80% what to do. And as we start doing it, we'll learn the last 20%, but we're not doing that now. And, and I'm really, you know, I was, um, I'll be honest, I was a pretty big, got this little bobblehead, As a pretty big Bernie supporter. I was actually a surrogate. His climate plan was so good. I spoke to him in person. He really understood what was at stake. Whereas Biden's plan was, you got like an F or a D or something from the Sunrise Movement, very, very appropriately, in my opinion. He had longstanding ties to the fossil fuel industry. I saw, you know, the moment that the Democratic moderates Coalesced around Biden and ended Bernie's chances Um, and Elizabeth Warren stayed silent. Um, That was really the moment where I'm like, I'm not sure that we can do this with electoral politics anymore because I because I really felt like Biden was going to be not great for climate change.
0: Well, I happen to know that there was one presidential candidate who when she uh, left did endorse Bernie. We need to develop. We need to develop a different. Thank you. We need to develop, a different, uh, need to develop a, a different political constituency. Everyone, please go to candidatesummit.com. Right now, these primaries are being played out. Right now, uh, the progressives versus the corporate moderates. Um, they're not even moderates. Like Gutierrez said, they are actually the radicals. They um, are the
1: radicals. What they're uh, doing give is to madness. Nina Turner, yeah.
0: give to all of please uh, yeah. check out candidatesummit.com. I actually get because to we talk. We can't with leave Nina. electoral politics out of this either. Would you just say, Peter? I actually
1: get to talk with Nina in fifteen minutes. I'm really excited. Oh, good, good. And yeah. tell her
0: I will see her tomorrow morning. All right, I'll tomorrow. tell her you I'm say hi. To <laughs> Okay, I, I'm gonna call her nine. and say, Peter says I can't go. Okay. Maybe <laughs> <When laughs> you can do quickly. it by Zoom.
1: I don't know.
0: <laughs> no i'm gonna do a whole and anyway was uh, a long
1: conversation it took me two years to wrap down my flying by the way right that's and really what i what i really
0: love about the book which really i wanted to say everybody at the end anyway is you know one of the things peter talks about is just do something that's yeah, really core in the book just do something the little things that we can do and i've seen that in terms of changes in my life in a lot
3: of areas today marianne just do something yeah. okay real quickly wendy Hi, thank you for letting me talk. Um, I'm a wildlife biologist. I've been working on these issues since 1979. Wow. And um, in some cases, Peter, I have a little bit of a disagreement with you about agriculture in general um, because um, fossil fuels are a big component of fertilizer, mm-hmm. not just that we're using fossil fuels and it's you know all this nitrogen mm-hmm. content, water systems and stuff is actually destroying the soil, like literally mm-hmm. destroying the soil's ability to hold moisture and carbon. Yep. And so when people are thinking about taking action again, it's another expensive thing is that really got to think about changing our food system in
1: mm-hmm.
3: total. And it's not that animal agriculture is always bad there can be ways of doing it well. And I, I suggest everybody watch that little film, um, The Biggest Little Farm documentary. Yeah. It's made me feel hopeful. I can't Absolutely. tell you, times um, myself, colleagues have been under gag orders, both for state and federal government, which I've worked for. And so people, the public thinks they're getting the best information from the government. They're not, okay. I can that that. Um, Usually people just have to decide which sword they're going to fall on when they're... Uh, forgive me, Wendy. We
0: have to wrap this up because I feel <laughs> I owe it to Peter. He's in if, such demand tonight uh, and for all the good reasons. Um, if, and for if that If I could reason, respond, yes, though, if I, I could take to, one minute course, to respond, I just
1: want to say that I agree strongly with Wendy. Um, I should have said animal agriculture as it's currently practiced, but also I think overall on the planet, we just do have to eat a lot less meat. That's yeah. That's pretty mm-hmm. clear to me because again, like, You know, E.O. Wilson came up with this idea of half Earth, which I actually agree with. So I think we need to leave uh, more of the planet than we're currently allowing for wild places. And a big part of that would be to go towards a more plant based diet. Um, There are places. Especially like indigenous peoples um, uh, in very kind of marginal lands where you can't grow uh, plants. You have to, the only way you can survive is uh, through pastoralism. So there are definitely exceptions to that. Um, But I think that, you know, especially the beef industry. that's probably something I used to keep chickens. I don't anymore, so I, I know a lot of. Oh, I know. Once those, you
0: read Michael Pollan, you yeah. if that's over. Yeah. Um, anyway, so
1: yeah, there's a lot of wisdom to what you say. It's fascinating to think that because of the uh, the, the Haber process of nitrogen fixation, our bodies are basically all the nitrogen. In our bodies comes from es- essentially uh, you know natural gas, right? And the fixing of nitrogen from the air. So um, it's a pretty weird situation. And yeah, we have to completely rethink the food system. That's that's going to be in the harder part. Maybe that's in that 20% of um, the kind of harder stuff. But we got to get started thinking about that now. You're absolutely right. So yeah, thank you it. so much. I should probably go. Okay, but-
0: everybody. Uh, Peter Kamas, um, we all think the world of you. I know that I am speaking not only for the people on this call, but to all the people who will be watching this, uh, you please continue being you, doing you um never doubt the effect that you are having never doubt it not only with your actions uh such as the the civil disobedience but with every word you say at this point point. Uh, and particularly in this community thank you for bringing in the holistic integrative mm-hmm. nature personal change as well as external change thank you um, i know thank that you I so much Marianne.
1: thank you for you. having me on Too you you're a fantastic interviewer and that was a lot of fun so thank you thank so you much. god yeah. bless
0: you darling Okay, everybody, thank you so much. Um, All my best to you. Uh, Have a beautiful, beautiful night. Thank you everybody and um, happy Earth Day. Um, Let's hope that one year from now, we all feel much more hopeful uh, that the consciousness of the planet uh, and the activism of the planet has increased to such an extent that we really do feel that we are at the beginning stage of the regenerative era by which we will save the planet, save the species and save the world. God bless you, everybody. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you.